And you may recall prior to the Christmas season, we were studying the series of parables in Matthew chapter 13, all of which focused around the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus illustrates subjective and abstract spiritual truths by comparing them to objective, concrete, easily understood and familiar physical scenarios. He employed such figures in the parables as soil and the seed and the sower, birds, thorns, rocks, sun, wheat, tares, mustard seed, leaven, a hidden treasure and a pearl. And today we find ourselves at the end of chapter 13 in the final couplet of parables the seventh and eighth parable out of the eight that are found in Matthew 13. Parables describing divine judgment upon those who refuse to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, as well as the profound responsibility that we all, we all have to proclaim the truths of the kingdom. Before we look at the text this morning, might I just say that mine is a very unpopular message in our culture. Naive people resent the notion that God is anything other than a God of love. They can't imagine a holy God who punishes sin. We have a society today, even in so-called Christendom or churches that are ostensibly evangelical, they cannot understand the wrath of God. They cannot, cannot see that at all. They don't understand judgment. They can't conceive of a God that would send sinners to an eternal hell. And so, therefore, our culture has invented a kinder and gentler God. A God that kind of winks at sin and tolerates all manner of lifestyles and all beliefs, willing to go a God that is willing to go by any name, anything that you want to call him or her, and ultimately take all his creation to heaven, that kind of a God, as long as we do unto others as we would have them do unto you, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of God that they see. Or even worse, some people believe that the wicked are just annihilated. They no longer exist when they die. When I was in uh, California and I lived there and was teaching there, um, I remember on several occasions being asked to preach at some of the new seeker-sensitive churches. And uh, I, I, never, I never did, uh, and you will see why. One of them called me, and I remember they said, uh, now, whatever you do, we don't want you to preach about anything doctrinal. And so uh, it was interesting. The guy said kind of the typical line. And I could tell well, you don't know me very well. But uh, he, he said, that, you know, people don't understand those things. Uh, it's divisive. And he went on and he said um, uh, nothing about sin, repentance or hell or anything negative because people feel guilty enough without all of that. And of course, he had received his information. Uh, this was an associate pastor that I'm, I was talking to. He received that information, uh, which was the wisdom of a marketing firm, not the wisdom of God from his word. He wanted me to focus on the love of God and how uh, he the, all the blessings that he offers to those who love him and love others. And so I asked him, I said, so really what you're saying is you don't want me to preach the gospel. And he said, no, that is the gospel. And, and I said, well, I beg to differ with you. If that's the good news, what's the bad news? And. We went through some of that and he said, well, you know, many, many of the people that come to our church and by the way, this was a huge church. There were there were probably about four thousand people in it at the time. And he said, many of the people that come to our church are confused. They're suffering. They feel rejected. They're lonely. They have poor self-esteem, esteem, et cetera. And I said, you know, I, I'm just curious from from your perspective as a pastor, um, for what reason did Jesus die on the cross? And he said, well, I really don't see what that has to do with any of this. And our conversation kind of went downhill from there. And we parted company in an amiable way. Not too long ago, to give you another example, I was at a large church in Nashville. 
And I like to pick up their little brochures. We're, we've got most of ours on the website. We will eventually have one that we will hand out like we used to. But on their, on their little brochure, they had one section that said, Why many choose? And then they gave the name of their church. And I noticed uh, in, in, that, in that section, they had a, a number of things, why people would choose their church. But let me give you three of them that kind of emphasize the, the, the issue that I'm talking about and why the message that we have today in this text of Scripture from our Lord is so unpopular. In, in this particular brochure, it said that people choose our church because we have a biblical, uh, quoting now, a biblical pr- approach to life and issues. The Bible is taken very seriously, but not bound by literalism. Not bound by literalism. And knowing those people, as I do, the Bible is basically an allegory and it means different things to different people. And you can't really know what it says for sure. They had another statement. It says we also have a sense, uh, quoting again, a sense of Christian community in which consensus is in the person of Christ, not conformity of doctrine or creed. And then one more quote, a willingness to not only tolerate, but welcome and celebrate differences of opinion concerning faith, end quote. And of course, this is a radical departure from what Jude would tell us in his epistle to contend earnestly for the faith, the body of Scripture that was given to the saints, to fight for it. It would radically depart from Paul's words to us to rightly divide the word of truth and that the church is a pillar and support of the truth. And if there is truth, dear friends, there is also non-truth. And you must divide it. And naturally it's going to be divisive. That's what discernment is all about. It also radically departs from what Paul told Timothy and therefore all pastors, he says in first Timothy six, verse three, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Well, this is the mindset, however, of many people who call themselves Christians avoid anything That is offensive, especially such notions as judgment and hell. I was reading recently about the purpose of a certain, quote, Christian broadcasting organization. And they said that their purpose is, quote, to be a good neighbor to a variety of listeners. That was their purpose. And they have a policy statement that they give to prospective broadcasters And in that policy statement, they have the following instructions, and I quote, When you are preparing your program for these stations, please avoid using the following. Criticism of other religions and references to conversion, missionaries, believers, unbelievers, old covenant, new covenant, church, the cross, crucifixion, Calvary, Christ, the blood of Christ, salvation through Christ, redemption through Christ, the Son of God, Jehovah, or the Christian life. They went on to say, these people listening are hungering for words of comfort. We ask you to adhere to these restrictions so that God's word can continue to go forth. Please help us maintain our position of bringing comfort to suffering people. End quote. Now, folks, obviously Jesus had it all wrong. Because his was an urgent message of repentance and fleeing from a wrath to come. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and to warn sinners of judgment. And since I have been called and commissioned to be his spokesman, I cannot and I will not change the message, which happens to be the truth, whether people like it or not. You know, concealing the truth of imminent judgment under the guise of love is as foolish as refusing to warn people in a in a crowded auditorium that there is a fire in the basement because you don't want to disturb them. Well, this morning we see that love warns, and that's why I've entitled my message to you this morning, the love that warns. Because today we will understand better the sobering and for some offensive truths given to us by the one who loved us enough to warn us and to die for us, who gave his life for us to pay the penalty of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, having said that, let's look at Matthew chapter 13. We find ourselves this morning in verse 47. Through verse 40 or 52. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. And gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now, the context here is one using, once again, a very familiar figure that the people would have been aware of, that of a dragnet, or we would maybe call it in our vernacular a seine or a large net. Many times what they would do is take a net, a very large net, sometimes as large as a half a mile long. And they would have weights on the bottom of the net and floats on the top of the net. And it would form like a large wall that would kind of wrap around a large area and scrape the bottom of the lake all the way up to the top. And. Many times they would have the ends of it on, on two ships and the ships would kind of make a circle or, or you might say a semicircle, both of them and meet in the middle. And then they would take in their catch or sometimes what they would do is anchor the net on the shore. And then one ship would take the net way out and begin to circle its way back until it eventually came back to the shore. And then they would gradually tighten the net. That's the concept here. They would drag the net to the shore and then they would gather in all of the creatures that they had caught in the net. And some of them would be good. Some of them would be bad. Some of them edible, some not. And then they would separate the good from the bad and put them into containers, take them to the market and so on. Well, the point of the illustration is simply this. Verse 39. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now, let me expand the application a bit. Friends, the kingdom of God is like an invisible net. This is what Jesus is saying, that is gradually encircling humanity. It's capturing within it both the saved and the lost. And men and women may think that they swim freely in the waters of life, going wherever they will. But the dragnet of divine judgment will eventually bring everyone to the shores of separation, where the wicked will be separated from among the righteous. But the dragnet of the kingdom currently allows us all to exist together. The wicked and the righteous, the saved and the unsaved. The wicked are oblivious to the inescapable day of judgment that is gradually encircling them. Not only do the wicked of the world coexist with true Christians, but Jesus reminded us, did he not, that they live right alongside us. There are the tares with the wheat. They live inside the church. They're hard to distinguish. You will only be able to distinguish them at the harvest time of judgment. Jesus warned that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. You will recall that means that there are pastors that are really wolves dressed up like shepherds. They have the veneer of a shepherd, but it's only a disguise. And they are predators in the pulpits. Paul warned us in Acts 20 to be on guard. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. We've seen that even in our own church. Jude warned about it as well, how that we would be in a perpetual battle for the truth because of false teachers. He said in Jude 4 that they have that they, they've crept in unnoticed. They've snuck into the church. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These men are those, it goes on to say, who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. He describes them as grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. 
They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. By the way, there's probably no greater illustration of that than the prosperity teachers that we see today on our television sets. He goes on to say in verse 19, they cause divisions. They're worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. So the unsaved coexist with the saved right now. They're hard to spot. Yes, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits in Matthew 7. First Corinthians eleven nineteen. it tells how that you can spot them many times because they're factious and they're divisive. But ultimately, the final exposure of the true and the false will occur at the day of judgment when there will be a divine separation. Again, as a footnote here, there's a huge movement today in the so-called church to blur the distinctions between the wickedness of the world and the holiness of the church. I read you one example of that a few minutes ago. I think of the seeker-sensitive philosophy of contemporary evangelicalism that goes to great lengths to make the unregenerate who are spiritually dead, blind, and deaf, slaves to their sins, to make them comfortable in their so-called worship services. I think of postmodernism that proudly asserts that there is no truth. So anyone that claims to know truth is a narrow-minded Neanderthal that is proud and arrogant. And as a result, those kind of churches will embrace this doctrine of tolerance, which produces the Laodicean apostasy of Revelation 3, where the Lord is on the outside knocking, wanting to come in into fellowship because he's not on the inside of the church, the type of church that makes him vomit. The distinctions are further blurred by the lifestyle choices of many Christian people. Far too often, dear friends, these lifestyles are indistinguishable. From non-Christian people. You look at the passions for materialism. You see Christians or people that claim to be Christians living in immorality. Abusing their wives or their husbands. People dressing immorally. Piercing their bodies like the pagans. And on and on it goes. Recently I talked with a lady that I know professes to be a, a Christian. And she was telling me and some others about a movie that they had gone to over the holiday season and the name of the family and the name of the movie was really the name of a family that is a play on a very vulgar word. And she said, oh, it's really a cute movie. And I found myself thinking, how could you possibly think that that is cute if you understand the holiness of God? But again, there's a blurring of the distinction of these things. We see churches where worship services are nothing more than rock concerts. You see guys coming up, and I've seen this, with their oversized pants, dragging on the ground, hanging off their heinies, filled with tattoos, body pierces, uh, bizarre-looking hairstyles. And the music is blaring at, at deafening decibels. One uh, group of people told me not too long ago that their church had fallen into that trap, and they had guys up there on their stage leading worship, barefooted with those kinds of jeans and holes all in them. You, you know the you know the look, you know the sound of it all. The sound of the music screams, and the beat of the music screams. Look at us; we're just like the world. A far cry from. The musicians of the Levitical orchestras and choirs in the Old Testament that were skilled in their musicianship. They were steeped in theology and sanctified in their character. By the way, many times, again, as a digression here, um, these people justify this biblically because of a gross misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 9.22. There, we, Paul says, I have become all things to all men that I may by, by all means save some. And out of that, they distort this into a blasphemous philosophy that basically says we must become like the world in order to win the world. Well, the logical end of that is we need to have Christian bars and Christian bartenders. And how about Christian gambling casinos complete with Christian striptease? Why don't we have scripture, uh, Christian Maybe prostitution and Christian pornography. We can have verses right there on the centerfolds. I mean, that's the logical end of that type of insanity. And I don't mean to be wanton and crude, dear friends, but we need to think through 
where many times the distortions of Scripture ultimately take us. Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might I made by all means save some to help us understand that he was and we should be constrained by love, not law, to honor the culture. And this is what he did to honor the culture and the ceremonies and the traditions of the Jews as well as the Gentiles in an effort to win them to Christ. He was willing to humbly condescend to their childlike understanding of divine truth and help them understand the glorious truths of the gospel, but never at the expense of compromising truth, never abandoning his fervent commitment to a disciplined life of godliness and purity of character. That's why Paul also said in Second Corinthians six fourteen, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness of what fellowship has light with darkness. In other words, there should be no kind of a synergy, spiritual endeavor with unbelievers or what they stand for. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever, he says. In verse 17, he says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. And as I have said before, and I must remind you again, dear friends, it is our separateness from the world that wins people to Christ, not our similarity with it. And when people see that there's something different about that life and they see how we handle adversity, they see the hope that is within within us and they see a lifestyle that is honoring to God and that is being blessed by God. And they see wives that truly love their husbands because husbands truly love their wives and children that truly obey their parents and parents that truly love their children and on and on and on. That is something that the spirit of God uses To draw them to himself. Well, the point with all of this is to say, although we are to be separate from the world, we nevertheless presently coexist with them, awaiting a divine separation that will eventually occur. And it's interesting that God tells us here that he's going to use angels to assist him in that great day of judgment. His reapers are his angels. By the way, we see that in Matthew 13, 39 as well. And also now here in in verse 41, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and and they will cast them into the furnace of fire and so on. Now, again, notice this in verses 49 and 50. After the dragnet of divine judgment has gathered both the good and the bad, it is the angels that will come forth and take out the wicked. By the way, this judgment is also described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. You don't need to go there, but you can mark that. The great white throne judgment where sinners will someday stand condemned before the throne of a holy God they refuse to worship. And the dead, both great and small, the text says, will stand in his presence. That text reminds us that the book of life will be opened. People will be judged according to their deeds. In other words, the omniscient ruler of the universe will compare every thought, every word, every action to his perfect holiness. And without exception, every man and every woman will be found wanting. For the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because they refused the gift of grace, the forgiveness of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are required to pay the penalty for their sins. And therefore, we read in Revelation 20 and verse 14 that they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, physical death being the first. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. My, a tragedy that begs language, my friends, a tragedy that begs language. So Jesus is, first of all, communing, communicating here in this text, the truth that judgment is coming. And I would say there are really two primary truths in this short parable. Number one, judgment is coming. And then secondly, It is severe beyond our imagination. And now I must admit that I speak of things I would rather not. But love constrains me to warn you of the unspeakable. Notice, first of all, the angels shall come forth and take out, it says, take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Notice first, my friends, that they are to be cast out. 
They will be overpowered by angelic executioners at that great white throne. Now think of this. Here is the ultimate end of man's rebellion. The ultimate consummation of his free will. This is where his freedom to choose ultimately took him. And I must ask, now what has come of proud independence? For those who have rejected Christ, this is a description of where you will be someday, lest you repent. And I ask you, on that day, now what will you choose to do? On that day, where is the advantage of your arrogant commitment to self-determination? Where is the power of the human spirit? Now where is the might of man? Now where is the wisdom of philosophy? Where is the profit of all of your wealth? Where is the wisdom at that day of self-righteousness? And where is the advantage of your hypocrisy? Those who would suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Those who spurned their mother's pleadings. Those who rejected their father's prayers. Those who shook their fist in the face of a holy God. Now where is your arrogance? Where is your pride? And I think of that day with horror for people that I know that were friends and loved ones of mine that will someday endure this fate. And also those that probably will because of their arrogance. And I think of that day because on that day, unless they repent, and some, of course, did not, they will fight in vain in a desperate rage of what they would consider to be injustice. And the angel of death will throw them into an abyss without bottom. And then they will experience the darkness that they loved all their life. And they will do it eternally in pain and suffering. And notice the Savior's description of this place where sinners will be cast. It's a furnace of fire. And again, our minds cannot conceive of such torment. The prophet Isaiah also reminds us in Isaiah 33:14 that hell is the devouring fire. It is a place of everlasting burnings. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus warns of the sentence he will someday execute against the wicked, where he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Mark 9, 43, Jesus describes the fire as being unquenchable. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, he warned of the wrath of God that would be poured out upon all those who reject him and that they would be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And in Revelation 20, verse 15, the spirit of God speaks through John and says that anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. By the way, it is also described in other passages as a place of outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12. Friends, please grasp this in your mind as best you can. Imagine that for the infinite eons of eternity, the only light that these people will ever see is the light in their mind's eye as they remember the magnificent brilliance of the Shekinah glory of the living God that just sentenced them and threw them into the abyss. The light of the Lamb. Hell will be the utter absence of light because all through the Bible, light symbolizes the glory of God. It symbolizes life. It symbolizes hope. And in hell, there will be none of that. Also, remember that hell is a place of varying degrees of punishment. The Bible basically teaches that the more truth a person has and understands and rejects, the more severe the punishment. We see this principle in Jesus' parable of the slaves in Luke 12. We see it in his judgments pronounced against Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in Matthew 11. That's where Jesus did the majority of his miracles and the majority of his ministry. And those people rejected him. 
And he said to them, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for you. Also, the writer of Hebrews condemned, condemns those who willfully rejected the sacrifice of Christ, stating that they would receive a greater punishment than even those in the Old Testament who merely rejected the light of the Old Covenant. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 28, we read, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? By the way, it was for this very reason that Jesus began to conceal divine truth from those whose hearts were hard. He did that, remember, as an act of judgment as well as mercy, because he was protecting them from greater condemnation by depriving them of the opportunity to reject even more saving truth. It's sad And I must again digress because I want to teach you something that's very important that is rampant and growing in our society today. It is sad that there are many who have a who have endeavored to redefine God. And I believe this is very foolish to redefine God once again as a God of bliss and a God of blessing. And they've come up with this doctrine of annihilation. You certainly see it in the Seventh-day Adventist movement and and as well as many others and other cults as well. But for these people, they believe that when the wicked die, in some cases they will say, well, they just suffer for a little while and then they just go out of existence. And others will say, well, no, not really that. Uh, Hell is just really the grave and people just cease to exist. And so the grave or hell is just the absence of heavenly blessing. That's the punishment that they receive. And their argument is based upon passages in the Bible that that give reference to the destruction of the wicked. And they would say that that implies that they no longer exist after they people are destroyed. But, friends, destruction does not necessarily imply a ceasing to exist. Those passages regarding destruction speaks of, of just the, the devastating consequences of final judgment. They would also argue that eternal wrath is inconsistent with the love of God. And we hear that many times. But again, such a notion betrays a deficient understanding of the holiness of a holiness of God, a holiness that cannot endure sin and requires sin to be punished. You see, you must understand that this incredible punishment is required because the evil of sin And rebellion against God is far more offensive than we can ever imagine. The love of God is seen in his remedy to reconcile sinners to himself, to love people enough to say, I'm warning you, judgment is coming. And I offer you grace and I offer you forgiveness. I offer you mercy through my atoning work. You know, you cannot argue this annihilation philosophy Biblically, certainly many of the passages that we've already examined would rail against it and would beg for relevance. I also think of our Lord's words in Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. In other words, those that could murder you. Don't fear them, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, if that meant the grave, then what difference is there? Don't fear those who could kill you and put you in the grave. But. Don't fear God who can do the same. I mean, that makes no sense. It's ridiculous. Also in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I don't know how much clearer you need it to be. You see, hell is not merely annihilation. There is no punishment in that. I know people who are suffering in anguish because of some physical affirmity, and they would welcome death. What type of punishment would that be? And also, as I think about it, what punishment would there be in annihilation when compared to the inconceivable sufferings of Christ on the cross? 
on the cross where the, the great agony that he endured had to be endured because he was satisfying the justice of God. How would just mere death compare to that sacrifice? The one who was the propitiation for our sins. You see, the eternal wrath of hell acknowledges the perfect justice of God. And our offended deity is even glorified in his fury, glorified in his wrath. The psalmist reminds us of that in Psalm 76.10. There we read, For the wrath of man shall praise thee. With the remnant of wrath thou shalt gird thyself. So again, my friends, though we may not like it, though we may not understand it, hell will be a place of unimaginable suffering for eternity. Jesus also said in Mark 9.44 that it's a place where the worm never dies, where their worm does not die. In other words, where bodies will not decay. Again, that's ridiculous if people just are annihilated, if they just cease to exist. Now, let me clarify something for you. When an unsaved person dies, what happens? Biblically, what happens? Well, the soul goes immediately into everlasting torment. And I've been at the deathbed of unregenerate people pleading with them to come to Christ. And as they begin to pass through the veil, I have witnessed firsthand the agony that they begin to experience. However, I would not validate the truth of that claim based on my experience. I validate it on the basis of God's word. So when the soul goes, uh, when an unregenerate person dies, their soul goes immediately into everlasting torment. But there will be, according to the Bible, Acts twenty four fifteen, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There is the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. John five twenty nine. And so there's going to be two different resurrections. One will happen at the second coming. The other will happen uh, a thousand years later or more at the great white throne judgment. Now, the first resurrection, catch this now, is of those who are Christ at his coming. First Corinthians 15, 23. That will be when we receive our glorified bodies. And this includes the redeemed of the church age. First Thessalonians 4, 13. It also will include all of the Old Testament saints, Daniel 12, 2, and the tribulation saints, Daniel 12, 4. So, in other words, the first resurrection will be for those who are Christ's at his coming. At the second coming, we receive our glorified bodies. And all of these people will enter into the millennial kingdom and resurrected glorified bodies, along with believers who survived the tribulation. But the second resurrection is that of unbelievers of all ages. And that will not occur until the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. And there we read, and they, at the end of verse 4, and they, referring to the saints, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, in other words, the unsaved, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Verse 6 describes that as the second death. And then they will be cast into the furnace of fire with a body that has now been fitted to them and suited for eternal, eternal suffering. A body where there will never be any decay, where their worm does not die. And what will they do in this place? They will weep and gnash their teeth. It's a haunting thought. The concept of gnashing is that of grinding your teeth due to severe pain. Friends, there is no annihilation for the damned, only conscious, eternal punishment for their sins. By the way, another argument against annihilationism is in Revelation 19, verse 20. Bear with me just a moment. There we read about the beast and the false prophet and how... They, at the end there of the tribulation, are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So these are demonically possessed human beings, unregenerate, false teachers, false leaders that are cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And yet, according to Revelation 20 and verse 10, we see that these two characters are still there 1,000 years later. At the end of the millennial kingdom, 
When, according to Revelation 20:10, we read the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where, catch this, the beast and the false prophet are. And they all will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, if annihilation was true, then explain to me why the beast and the false prophet are still there. No, you must understand it's the love of the Lord Jesus. It's the love of God that warns sinners of the dragnet of judgment that is inexorably closing in upon humanity. Friends, Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. And it is severe beyond all imagination. And he closes this section with one final parable, which is really kind of a summary of all he has been preaching concerning his kingdom in verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? In other words, disciples, do you comprehend these realities that I have been dis disclosing to you? All of these parables in Matthew 13. Do you understand the parable of the seed and the soils? Remember those four hearts of evangelism. Do you understand that some hearts are impervious to truth? Some are impressionable. Some are indifferent. Some are impoverished and will embrace it. Do you understand that? Do you understand the parable of the wheat and the tares? How hypocrisy works and how unbelievers are destined to eternal wrath because of their hypocrisy. Do you understand the parable of the mustard seed? How that the church is going to grow and bless the whole world? Do you understand the parable of the leaven and how the church is going to permeate the world? The kingdom of God is going to continue to grow. Do you understand the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value? How that the kingdom of God may be discovered in different ways, that it will not be valued by the same Valued the same way by everyone, that it, that it is worth all that you have, that it requires a, a personal acquisition, that it will someday evoke great joy. Do you understand the dragnet that judgment is coming and that it is severe beyond all imagination? Have you understood all these things? And they answered, yes. Yet, as we watch them later, we see that their understanding was limited at best. So he goes on to say, verse 52, and I'm sure the Lord knew that they didn't fully understand it all, but they understood enough. And he said, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me stop there. Ever, every grammatius or scribe, which really denotes is a Greek word that, that, that means to write one who writes and the Jews understood the, the, the scribe in this term as being a connotation of, of one who is a student or a learner or an interpreter of divine revelation in the Old Testament. So the Lord is using this with them. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, he says. In other words, you theologians of Judaism who have now sat under my instruction, you disciples of the kingdom heaven of heaven, you are verse end of verse 52 here like a head of a household. Who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now, think of this, a sensible head of a household will care for his family by judiciously maintaining and distributing the possessions that, that, that he has in his storehouse. He's concerned about the proper care of his family. And so the Lord is using this in the parable here. You disciples of the kingdom of heaven, you have a treasure of divine revelation. You have it from the Old Testament. You also have it from the new. And you must dispense these glorious truths to those in need, to those to whom you have been called to preach the kingdom. You must, he says, bring forth out of your treasure Bring forth is ekbalo. It means to dispense or to throw out, to distribute, to disperse. As a, as a wise household steward here, you are to disperse these truths. And the context here would indicate you're to do it with great generosity, with great concern because of the terrifying judgment that befalls those who have not heard the truth, who have not been warned. Or who refuse to heed the warning. And so Jesus is charging them to be preachers. To be teachers of divine truth. That's what he's saying. 
You see, we have a stewardship responsibility to minister to the saved and to warn the lost. And I might say that there is a direct correlation I have found between our perception of the horrors of hell and evangelism. If you don't believe what Jesus says about imminent judgment and eternal punishment, that people just cease to exist, and none of this is really that big of a deal. You know, you warn some people, and if they die, well, you know, they just die. They're not going to spend an eternity in hell. But friends, if you believe Jesus, as I do, then you are motivated with a driving sense of urgency to warn people to repent. Even if they're offended, true Christians have a stewardship responsibility to warn the lost of God's wrath. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear, or in other words, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I know over the years I have been severely ridiculed for what I preach, especially concerning sin and its eternal consequences. Some of you, I'm sure, have been here. I I have seen people get up and leave. I can think of a number of them who have, and some endure it to the end, and then you better get out of the way when the final amen is said, or you will get run over as they run from this place. I've had counselees go into a rage and cuss me out when I confronted them with their sin and warned them of the wrath of God that abides upon them because of their rebellion. But friends, I must say that there is no ridicule that could ever be more devastating to me than an accusing conscience that would indict me because I had compromised the truth. Especially for personal gain. That is sickening to me. Especially as a pastor teacher that has been called and gifted by God, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. First, or in Colossians 1.25, he also says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word. A steward, by the way, is a slave that manages the household of God. We are stewards of the household of God. I don't preach some message that I have concocted. I preach the message that God has told me to preach. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it says, It is required in stewards that one be found what? Appealing, non-offensive, likable, charismatic, to be found faithful. I have to answer to him, and so do you. So I challenge you, do you love people enough to warn them? Or are you so in love with yourself that you just don't want to risk any rejection? And Because so often that's what accompanies evangelism. And so rather than that, you'll kind of water it down because ultimately you're ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So you water down the truth and you tend to talk about just the love of God. And how he gives us purpose in our life. How he will fulfill all of our dreams and all of our ambitions. How that he will help us have more self-esteem. How that he will help us pad our bank account. Boy, now that stuff sells. How he will heal all of our diseases. Friends, may I remind you, Christ died for our sins. And sin is infinitely more offensive to God than we can ever imagine. Sin is to God what fire is to a human being. It is utterly intolerable. And perhaps it is for that reason he uses fire in eternal punishment. Unless people repent and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they will die in their sins and they will be condemned to an eternal damnation. Beloved, I believe that if we were to experience one second of the wrath of God, and certainly the Lord experienced it all, did He not, on the cross? I believe that if we could experience just just one second of it, we would have a passion to warn the lost that would exceed the rich man who died in his sins. Remember in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus? Remember how he begged Father Abraham to have mercy on him? And to send that beggar Lazarus, whom he had treated with contempt in his lifetime, to dip his finger in the water and just cool his tongue. He was in such torment. He said, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But the answer was, no, there is a great gulf fixed between the two. No one can pass over it. And he went on and he, he, he says, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. To which Abraham reminded him, no, it's scripture. It's the truth of divine revelation that the Spirit of God uses to win people to himself. Not personal testimony. Not even from someone that has come back from the grave, even hell itself. For it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, dear friends, may we all bow ourselves before these sobering truths that sinners will be converted And saints be ignited with an evangelistic zeal that cannot be extinguished. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you loved us enough to not only provide for our reconciliation to you, because indeed we are filled with sin. We are born into sin. We were once alienated from you, but because of Christ, we have been reconciled to you. We praise you for that work of grace and for the way that you caused it to work in our souls. But Lord, when we think of the inconceivable agonies of an eternal hell, we shudder because of those that we know that have died in their sins and those that will die in their sins lest they repent. Lord, I pray that you will give us that evangelistic zeal. Give us a sense of divine urgency. Help us to get serious about warning the people within our family, the people that we work with, the people in our community. Oh, Lord God, that you would use us as your servants, as your instruments of righteousness, that many will be saved. And likewise, Lord, because of the torment that we've examined this morning, may we once again be so amazed at your grace that we are stimulated to be a living sacrifice because that is what you deserve for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. May it bear much fruit in our hearts. I pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Brian, come and close us with a We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.